Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here once again with Freelance Writer and NoCB's uh, own TJ Hafer. Hello. And we welcome back once again, official anime interpreter for the state of Georgia, Brian Smalley, a.k.a. Chef Lou Boo. How we doing? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, we welcome GamesBeat's television tutor, The Prince Beyond, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. (laughs) So this week we are going back to the dying days of the Han Dynasty with Total War Three Kingdoms Mandate of Heaven, uh, which moves the start date for the Total War campaign back to, well, the time before everything goes completely to shit and just when we're pretty much right there on the cusp. Uh, Brian, I wanted to start with you since... Uh, you were on one of my favorite episodes of Three Moves Ahead uh, from the last couple of years, which was discussing uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms as a setting and what what's appealing about it, uh, what is sort of resonant about that history. Uh, it was a great show. People should go back and listen to it. I am curious what relationship you ended up forming with Creative Assembly's take on the setting. Yeah, I, I honestly, I love it. I think that they um, they knocked it out of the park. And I've loved... Uh, playing the game and seeing the different factions and seeing how they they work. I, I you know, I'll be the first to admit that uh, some of the factions and their uh, idiosyncrasies is not my favorite. But um, with the Mandate of Heaven, uh, they're given a lot of face time to factions that ga- uh, you know Koei Tecmo has traditionally played as a comedy bit, and they really did a great job of giving these early factions and these early leaders uh, just really really cool. Uh, setups and, I, and I've really enjoyed uh, being able to play the the yellow turbans as a as a as as my faction as the protagonists, which I think that holds water when you see just if you're familiar with it how everything was in such turmoil come around uh, 194 198. Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting setting because I, like one of the interesting choices they make here is that. They interpret what is happening at the start of this uh, period as kind of being a mass uprising of the disenfranchised against kind of a corrupt political elite, which is probably probably correct, right? Given the given the scale of the way the Yellow Turban Rebellion is uh, like depicted in Romance of the Three Kingdoms, it certainly seems like there's probably a bit more going on uh, than a guy had a vision and half the country was like, let's rock and roll, uh, which is kind of how it's presented. Yeah. They, I mean, uh, I will say that there's a, there's about 14 years before uh, when the game, when Mandate of Heaven starts and the, the 14 years of, of Zhang Jue uh, or Zhang Jiao, depending on if you use old or new translations, but um, there's 14 years before when the game gets into it where he's actually like doing all the groundwork, doing the grassroots work. He's going out to the people in the towns. He's healing them. Caucusing. He's caucusing. He's putting in the work on the, on the foot. And, <laughs> and honestly, like they, they don't talk as much about like the fact that he did like, he had like an herbal medicine degree or whatever the fuck they got back then. And he, him and his brothers did go around to the towns in the north and they did help out the people. They were the only people up there. There wasn't, there wasn't, uh, anybody up there but like 
villages and mountains that were just like under bandit attack or wolf attack or people were dying of like old diseases that we've cured that were just like, oh, you just need clean water. Like, uh, you know, and he was up there doing stuff like that. And that's why he has such a footing and such a base at the beginning of the Mandate of Heaven game. You know, he's had 14 years to do this and he's been listening to the people complaining about how the fact that the government doesn't doesn't care and they don't care i mean they do not care when you talk about like corruption in a government like i don't think there's many modern governments that have this level of like people who are awful at the top in volume because um, there are well. there are there are <laughs> there are some morons in power in the time at the time of uh chung jue's uh ascent to the yellow turban rebellion and uh and it's just it's just wild. And he he was not a dumb man. Something the game kind of glosses over was that they had a representative in the courts. Like they had people who were nobles and elites working for them inside the government at the courts to try to be like, hey, y'all need to fix this, help the people out. Please do something before the people start revolting. And and then what happened was the eunuchs heard about that and they just executed all those people. And then that's where we jump in with the with the Zhang Jue uh, story and the Mandate of Heaven. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us, you know, if if your first encounter with this history was the uh, Dynasty Warriors series, like the Yellow Turbans are the level one enemies, right? Like this is they're your tutorial adversary, and then things they're the rats. Yeah, then yeah. things really get rock get rolling after they're after they're dealt with. Uh, but I think what's interesting about Mandate of Heaven is that it does kind of feel like. Before you can lay out the uh, struggle for for establishing a new dynasty and the struggle for power uh, among leaders of uh, you know various various Han factions or or once loyal Han factions uh, that follows the suppression of the revolt, I think the cool thing that Mandate of Heaven is working on depicting is how completely disruptive and destructive the Yellow Turban Rebellion is and how rapidly the entire Han system begins to unravel, not just from that rebellion, but from all the forces it ends up unleashing. Uh, how did y'all feel about like how the game models this aspect of the conflict? Because Mandate of Heaven is almost like a campaign within a campaign. Uh, it is operating according to some different mechanics. It is, you know, it converts over into the main Total War campaign if you play long enough, but it is at the same time trying to be its own separate uh, campaign as well and tell its own sort of bespoke story to the setting. How do you all feel about how Creative Assembly did with this? I'll let TJ go since he actually played as the Emperor. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I was most impressed with for sure. Um is the the Liu Hong, the Emperor Ling um faction, the just all the unique stuff they added for that. Um and I, I mean we've talked before about how playing declining empires can be fun. Um and I just feel like the way they set up the whole bureaucracy where like you have to deal with the eunuch faction, but then like to take power away from them, you either have to give power to the royal family or to the warlords 
And if you give it to the warlords, they're going to have more autonomy. But if you keep it in the family, you're going to make the warlords mad and they might rebel against you. And it's, you know, it's a lot of plates to spin from like the very first turn. You're also in the middle of like a terrible famine that you have to find some way to solve before you just like run out of food and everybody rebels. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, it's it's very challenging and they give you some tools to kind of uh boost you up a little bit like you start with these really super overpowered imperial units but you have to use them really wisely because they have extremely low replenishment rate so if they get beat up it's like you're you're kind of just done for a little while um yeah i think it's one of the best designed factions and one of the best designed starts in any total war i've ever played uh even though i you know failed hard <laughs> oh really you didn't uh, win with the emperor strange I did. No. <laughs> no. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> I think the Emperor is really cool because you are, I mean, you're basically starting the game saying, I am starting this game with a character who has made 15 or 20 fuck-ups in a row, like back-to-back. <laughs> I'm starting with, like, mad handicaps. This is, like, new yeah. game plus-plus mode. Um, but I played mostly through the the Jung brothers. Uh, Jung Jue was probably my favorite. They get the fervor mechanic. Which is super like you want to fight a hundred percent from the yellow turban side, and then we can talk about it from the imperial side maybe a bit because it's it is the is the governing mechanic of the mandate of heaven expansion. Yeah, so so with the brothers, each one has a different style of the fervor mechanic. Whether you're fighting constantly, defending constantly, or just kind of uh, expanding uh, exponentially, but all three of them, uh, I think that you want to play. You have to play these fast and heavy. These are like it feels so different for me from regular Total War because like when I'm playing Chang Jue, I'm literally like attacking everybody I can get my hands on at all times, and I'm keeping that fervor more maxed out because if that thing drops to zero, you're done. Your momentum is gone. On, and it's going to get really, really hard, really, really fast. But as long as you're fighting, as long as your people are, are, are scuffling, you have uh, ultra cheap, really strong peasant forces, easy to replenish and quick, and everybody heals up fast. And I was walking away from fights where I was outnumbered by like big cavalry units, and I was just like, "Nah, fervor's up. I don't, I don't care. I'm gonna whoop all y'all." Um, and it's a really neat thing to see, like. Uh, when your when your main uh unit or when your armies are moving around, you have a a, a lot of fervor. It causes this uh this effect uh around all these establishments around you, and everyone around you is basically like all of the peasants will start revolting if you have enough fervor and you move your units near an enemy camp or near an enemy uh city. And it's amazing to just be like, I just moved my whole army right into the middle of the shit, and now. All of these cities are revolting, and you know your army is less effective, and 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 it's really cool. My only uh, the only thing I was kind of upset was was that like 198, everybody turns on y'all. Like in 198, I think it is they flip a switch, and it's like everybody now hates the yellow turbans, and everybody on the field is ready to fight you, and that's kind of. Um, I, I get it from a gameplay perspective because you're so strong uh, before that, like the time you have before that to to really set up a base, but it kind of feels. Dis- uh, disingenuous to the texts or to the history because like i said before they did have allies like they did have people that were for it and eventually their teachings the reason that their teachings became the mandate was because sao sao knew that the yellow turbans had something good he just knew that they couldn't win and so later when sao sao takes over as the emperor he actually uh puts the yellow turbans 
stuff into policy. And he's like, yo, these are the policies now. Zhang Zhiwei, was, he doesn't say it, obviously. He's like, I came up with this great idea. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But like, he just takes what they were doing and just applies. He's like, all the peasants can get, get food, you know, socialism for everybody, free college, uh, which is <laughs> the like, yellow turban pulled I mean, the party to the left, is what you're saying. Listen, the yellow turban's <laughs> pulled apart. Sao Sao, a moderate, a centrist, comes over, sees this is the path. Uh, maybe he's a game reviewer or something. I don't know. And he's like, <laughs> I can lead the people. And, uh, but like all this stuff, him, uh, Tong Jue, what he pushed, how he got the peasants there, then Sao Sao adopting those plans. And then later, um, you know, uh, that stuff moving on to the Suma family, uh, and Suma Yi, uh, taking that stuff and building the gene empire about like, you know, about quote unquote meritocracy and like, and like educating people. All of that stuff is, is based on, on what they started in the yellow turbans. Um, and I'm getting off game mechanics, but I still really, really, really enjoy it. Uh, it's very cool and it's very fast and it felt very different from, uh, the total wars that I'd played before. Did you have, because I, I played a little bit as Zhangjua too, and I did have a couple warlords like way out in the west or something that like join your alliance if you get big enough. Like it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a lot, but it was like, well, they did have a couple people that were like, all right, we're down with this. Yeah, I think you can get like the bandit queen if you're nice to her or something. But like, yeah. honestly, it's so it's so like uh, non- uh, impactful at the time that it can happen and it takes so much of you like pissing off your brothers and making concessions to people that aren't yellow turbans that i didn't find like it was worth it to bother i was just like uh also uh the focus this target yeah. option in the diplomacy for your brothers i love that it works yeah. it works for the jong brothers you're like yo all in on this dude fuck kong wrong and then they're just like Man, yeah fuck kong also wrong. and then the next turn God is like damn. the next the next turn is like, yo, Kong Rong's about to get his shit rocked. God, you can just tell that dude's up to no good. Uh, uh, he's got a lot of yeah. money. I love... I, I like how everyone, every campaign he starts, like, everyone declares war on him, and then he's fine. Yep. Like, what, oh what is God. that? How did Bro, this happen? My game with Zhao Zhao, you're right, Kong Rong was with me till the end, and, like, he, he got... Stomped repeatedly, and I believe I won the game with his faction as my ally. Like yeah. I think they hung around. Like I think I think they were like backstabbing didn't work. Great, love it. Uh, let's be loyal vassals and go all the way to the end together. Uh, and we were pretty ride or die. It was great. Yeah, that, that's what I have going with Liu Bei. Uh, he's just managed to create a kingdom of Qi, and uh, we're. You know, taking over the entire eastern coast of China and are slowly moving west. And uh, best friends. So, forever. how are you finding? Like, it sounds like you're playing maybe not in the central. Uh, like, like you're not playing with the yellow turbans quite as much, and not playing the core imperial factions as much. How does this look for uh, just a one of like the old factions or people who are geographically not central to the uh, this part of of the story, this part of Mandate of Heaven. Well, Lube is. Uh, he starts out, like, right in the middle of the north, just kind of wandering around, fighting bandits, and then, like, oh, now I have to fight the entire Yellow Turban army. That sounds fun. And if you manage to succeed at that a little bit, then the Emperor starts giving you land along the, the western coast, or the eastern coast, and uh, then you can start kind of building out from there to the point where, you know, he starts the main game. Um, but the, the interesting thing that my goal with, with picking him and sticking with him was that like, first of all, like 
he's supposedly the protagonist of the story at this point, right? So let's see what the game does to demonstrate that protagonistness. Uh, and then, like, at a strategic level, at a simulation level, I wanted to see, okay, like, the goal of this is to, you know, see how these factions go and move into the more conventional civil war than the peasant rebellion. Um, and so how does this work as a simulation? Because this is one of the big things that we loved about the original version was that it was a really effective simulation where you could see the right things potentially happening. And even the things that didn't happen seem like, oh, this is an interesting path for history to take. And uh, that's been mostly good. There's been a lot of border gore for I I suspect the main reason is that Yuan Shao just like gets involved right in the middle of the the whole yellow turban rebellion and like forms his coalitions with people at the drop of a hat and like that means that it becomes a lot harder to attack various other places. Um some of it's a little on rails like the Yuan Shao and the the Yuan brothers like both show up like at the point where they start the the 190 campaign um and like okay now there's a new superpower in the north and now there's a new superpower in the central regions of China so we we work around that but apart from that like it has been like a slight remix on how the simulation goes in a pretty interesting way um the South in particular is much more interesting because both Cao Cao and the Tsun family are just sitting there, like, below the Yangtze. Uh, as, like, regional powers, not quite the superpowers that uh, Yuan Chao and I have been. And so there's this really interesting kind of, like, five superpower dynamic, or five, five lead power dynamics with... Uh, four or five other pretty strong local powers and uh yeah it's it's a lot messier it looks a little like a paradox game in terms of the border gore but it does turn into a a different way that the simulation goes which uh the 191 could feel a little bit on rails at times just getting towards the the actual three kingdoms or maybe a slightly different three kingdom where this one uh is a whole mess I'm I'm curious when you were off to the uh so you know in a little more in the south I am curious whether or not it felt as impactful to have the yellow turbans uh like did that rebellion mean much to you uh down there cuz when I was playing as uh oh, yeah go on I I I'm in the north uh, it's I, the, keep, it's, I keep hearing you say south and I'm like okay you're in the south um yeah, no, no. The Tao Tao and Sensei are in the south, and they're having a blast. They're dancing constantly. Uh, but my my emperor is basically the north, the far northwest, and kind of s scattered down the western coast. And then eventually, I unified with Yuan Shu, who had taken over most of the far northeast, uh, and had no longer had anything in central China, which was strange, but, uh, yeah, so I, I'm like all along the north yeah. and the west coast, but not touching the south at all. Um, but it's, it's interesting because the south in the 190 start almost always had Wu as yeah. a guaranteed three kingdom that would expand through there pretty with, a lot of strength and now that's like pretty specifically straight up divided between uh Cao Cao and Sun Tse and uh that's made this campaign much different from any of the others that I played from the 190. 
Rowan, I have to ask, do you feel bad about the fact that if you're playing Liu Bei from the beginning, that you're responsible for Dong Zhuo? Because you, your faction is the one that saves him and eventually gets him into a position of power. Follow-up question, why does Liu Bei suck so much? <laughs> well, the first part is not modeled in the game, so... Okay. Wow. Uh, That's a, that seems like a big uh, minus 10 points for me. <laughs> Zhang Fei wanted to kill him, I'm just going to say... Jogfei did want to kill yeah. Jogfei tried to kill him <laughs> yeah, several there, times. There we go. So, uh, so Jogfei so is the good guy. He's here. really the, Fei, the, hero, the worst yeah. person you know just made a great point. <laughs> Jogfei <laughs> wanted to kill Dong Shuo. I love... Well, he, just, he does want to kill I everybody. love that Zhao Zhao yeah. murders an entire family because he misread the cover on how to cook d- dinner for Zhao Zhao. <laughs> Is that a yeah. goat or a person? Fuck, they're all, they're all dead. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how. Like a sword attack comes comes out like spraying an AK forty seven into a room full of people, but somehow Zhao Zhao, man, there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing that guy can't do. Uh. But so what was interesting to me uh, playing as the emperor, I felt like I had in in some ways more agency over dealing with the yellow turbans like i felt like a little bit more okay i can centrally direct this thing like yes historically this emperor is an idiot but for the purposes of this fact for for the purposes of this expansion i am now playing the emperor and while i am an idiot in my own ways i am at least given a set of mechanics that frame the problem uh that i have to address right the game is like yo these eunuchs are no good here are all the ways they're dragging you down if somebody had just slid that across the actual emperor things would have gone really differently um but when i was playing his brother uh lu chong who is uh a i didn't find a particularly interesting uh faction basically uh you know he is your black prince type figure uh just a military badass uh that everyone is just really hoping will will ride to the rescue of the dynasty and uh also has sort of a momentum driven uh play style but what i found interesting there was because all i could really do was watch my dumbass brother try to salvage the situation and fail the yellow turbans ended up being a much bigger problem for me because to some of the things that uh, brian was talking about earlier fervor feeds on fervor and it feeds on local effects like fervor spreads from like adjacent province to adjacent province that's one thing so like the as more and more of the countryside falls to the yellow turbans more and more of it begins to uh also become yellow turban curious uh let us say but also you get really specific local effects like if a yellow turban army moves into the area that is also going to spike fervor and that is going to accelerate all hell breaking loose. And so when I was Lu Chong and I couldn't really, you know, I'm sitting there basically like handcuffed to the, to, to the corpse of the, the, the dynasty and I'm watching them try to rally to, to address this and they're, they're whiffing on it, uh, repeatedly. The yellow turban became a pretty scary thing for me because yellow turban armies were flaring up faster than I could put them down. Like, I was sending good armies running around like fire brigades, basically trying to keep the yellow turban situation tamped down. But the problem is that until my neighbors could get on their feet, I was just going to keep having this problem. And so for me, it did sort of drive the 
breach moment uh, with with the Empire. Well, that and a couple other things. The the fact that the di- dynasty just collapses after a certain point. But it did sort of accelerate the the moment where I realized I actually can't stay within the framework of the Han the, the Han Empire. I can't stay here because I need to start conquering my neighbors because they are bad local governors. Right. It's like, I'm sorry, buddy. Like, this is the fourth fucking yellow turban army. I've had to come clear out of here. I am, I am just taking this over now. Um, and I didn't feel like I faced that same kind of pressure as the emperor himself, really. I didn't feel like the, 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 the Korhan dynasty was experiencing quite as much pressure because with your lack of fog of war, like pretty much everyone is sharing vision with you. So you have a really good idea of what is happening there. You can really see like, Oh, the yellow turbines are right over there and you can send uh Hey Jin's, you know, end game Uber badass army over there immediately and deliver like a knockout blow uh, to the, to the re- rebellion before a lot of those fervor dynamics begin to spiral. I was about to ask you actually about uh, about Heijin and like his interactions with the emperor because, um, yeah, you know, historically Heijin led the armies that that fought and took out the empire. They they Heijin disposed well. Heijin attempted to dispose. If Zhao Zhao just if he his, just listened to Zhao Zhao, all would have been fairways and greens. He got he got decapitated and then dunked on the gate. But like Heijin was the dude who I mean he was dumb as a as a box of rocks but like he still was the dude who's who basically died to start uh the generals rebelling against the eunuchs and got all the eunuchs killed and it's interesting that like as the emperor you're pushed to be like i need to keep hey Jin in here and i need his army because otherwise you know i don't have this sort of elite force of, of yeah soldiers. it was it was interesting i was um so there are certain plot beats that are built into the campaign because it's doing that total war thing where there are certain missions that are issued that are going to advance the plot and one of them after you have uh put down some uh rebellions one of the missions you were issued is bring hey jin back to the capital and i actually put that mission off a long time because i remembered what happened when hey jin went to the capital which is he shows up <laughs> And is like, these eunuchs gotta go. And he kills a whole lot of them. And then a bunch of them go running to the Empress and are like, please don't let this, don't let this guy kill us. And she's like, eh, you're right. You've, you've served, you've served us so long. I will, I'll, I'll make him see reason and we can, uh, we can walk this entire thing back. And, uh, hey, Jin, Basically, like respects the Dowager Empress so much, uh, they they have they're like from the same neighborhood or something. There's there's a, there's a weird dynamic between them, and he basically says, "Okay, I'll let these eunuchs off the hook, but they never they better not start any shit uh, from from this point forward." And they immediately start some shit. Uh, and Zhao Zhao's like, "No, you got to clean house. Like, kill everyone. If you don't kill everyone, they will kill you. You got to do it." Uh, I didn't feel like I wanted any of that chaos because I was as the Empire. You can slowly, as you accumulate political influence points, spend it to dismiss eunuchs from your service. You can spend it to dismiss your members from your bloated imperial court and cut down on the salaries you're paying. Uh, and then, you know, dudes like Kong Rong will be like, I have to go. My planet needs me. Uh, and, and just sort of peace out <laughs> at a certain point in the campaign. But 
So I, I actually put that off a long time, and I had the the Heijin army just like rolling around with its few like scraps of troops because uh, it couldn't replenish. But they were still such badasses that they were wiping out like if they were at a battle, they were going to wipe out uh, pretty much anyone they encountered, save for the core three uh, yellow turban leaders. So I I held that off a long time until. Uh, Heijin and an army led by Yuan Chao did a lot of good work cleaning up in the north and suppressing the uh, Yellow Turban Revolt. And so it was this weird dynamic where, you know, in the history, it's like the dynasty is such a powder keg that even its most loyal servants are actually its greatest danger to it, right? The most capable people that it can call on are also the people most likely to realize this entire thing is unsalvageable. Uh, and, and they're gonna, they're, they're gonna kick the door down. I didn't quite feel like I was dealing with those same, uh, explosive elements when I was playing as the emperor. Uh, TJ, what about you? I, I thought that it had, you know, a higher degree of tension playing as the emperor than playing as his brother personally. Um, Mainly because, I mean, you're talking about when Hujin comes and decides, okay, we're going to start killing off all the eunuchs. Um, your economy also has like a big like uh, bonus to it at the beginning of the game that is just like shit you're getting from the eunuchs. And I found that if you get rid of them too quickly, it just crashes your entire economy. Like you have to kind of progress down that imperial reforms tree to be able to exist without the eunuchs before you can like safely get rid of the eunuchs. Um, Cause I was just like, all right, every time I have enough political influence, we're just going to dump more eunuchs into the river. Like that's, <laughs> I know how this played out historically and we're just, we're going to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Uh, forget it ever happened. And yeah, that they, they don't, don't really let you do it that way uh, in, in total war. Uh, whereas I felt like the, what is what is his brother's name? I keep forgetting who starts hey, just south of. Uh, no, uh, um, Liu Hong's brother. Oh, uh, um, Liu Chen. Chen, that's a yeah. yeah Liu, with with Liu him, Chen? I yeah. With him, I like that campaign to me just felt more like let's go beat up some yellow turbans. Like it was a lot more straightforward and and uh, kind of less. Um, less of a balancing act. So I think I had the exact opposite um, experience with those two campaigns as Rob did. I think that it's, uh, I think it's interesting that Unix and vampires are both weak to running water. (laughs) (laughs) If you put them in, if you put them in a, in a, in a river, they just, they lose all their power. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. Given how the book is written, like you could, basically substitute, do a find and replace vampires with eunuchs. Whatever whatever uh, political thing that uh, Logan Zo I don't remember exactly. Yeah, that's close what, enough. Yeah. <laughs> whatever political trip he was on and trying to get the Ming and like doing whatever was like Whatever happens in this book I'm writing, I have to talk mad shit about the idea of eunuchs in politics. That's this is my <laughs> only goal here. Like everything else, just telling a story. But this is this is the theme. I would like to say that it was like a historical smear campaign, but like it's like eunuchs across all history seem to be having some problems with like getting themselves killed, uh, doing some stuff. Maybe maybe 
you know, 400, 500, 1,000 years ago, someone should have gone, well, so oh, you know what? These courts of eunuchs like are It's like Seinfeld when George is describing, like, the head of cabbage, like, what, like, what an adult man is capable of when he's not, like, always on the make. Uh, I think that's that's probably that's probably what's going on. Uh, I, I do love I do love that it's like a historical uh, feature of dynasties to get really paranoid about like, oh man, we get, just gotta we, we gotta make sure nobody like with a viable bloodline is anywhere near the levers of power. And obviously, nobody would want wealth and power for any other reason than to pass on to their uh, descendants. So we will just entrust this entire unaccountable class, this cast of people uh, who have every reason to hate us uh, with tremendous power. Um, yeah, and like I, I think the, the funny thing about the uh, eunuchs in Total War Three Kingdoms is that there's a lot of good eunuchs in that. Like, I'm going through the Imperial Court, and here's yeah. the problem. I was like, okay, I'm going to fire the asshole eunuchs. And you start scrolling through their personalities, and there are a few, like, real, like, raging assholes who are clearly just corrupt as hell. But you start scrolling through, and it's like, oh, man, this guy is just, like, generous and honest and wise and, damn, I can't fire him. And there's just, there's a million of these dudes. And the thing about it is like for all that they are a you know basically they, they represent the interest of entrenched bureaucracy like the negative impact they have is they cut down an amount of uh you know trade agreements you can have your construction costs are like doubled uh so doing any sort of infrastructure development is just wildly expensive uh basically it's like trying to expand the new york subway at, at like to do anything it's, it's it's like that um and but you got to get rid of some of these guys. The problem is their stats are really good. Uh, like the 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 eunuch yeah. leadership, you're you're scrolling through it and you're like, in any other game, if dudes like this came to your court, you would be like, I will fire everyone to put you in charge of this entire thing. Yeah, which is the entire problem. I think that's kind of a brilliant approach to this, right? Like it's very easy to read the history and be like, man, these guys got to go. Here's the problem: they actually are the brains of this thing. These are the guys who've been running the entire thing, and they know how it works. Yeah, well, this is such a I gamer mean, decision that they've <laughs> given you. They're like, listen, gamers, do you want the legendary sword? And you also have to be awful all the time. <laughs> well, and it, also, it's not like there's a lot of mid-tier guys you can replace right. them with. At least we early haven't been fighting on, a civil war like, yet. Anybody who's yeah, anybody who's competent is their own faction. So it's like you're replacing this like five star eunuch <clears throat> prime minister with just some like random level one strategist that you hired from the randomly generated character pool. So it's not just like a little step down. It's like a big step down in your governing capacity. So did you all get to the the mid game or the post mandate war game? Yeah, uh, a a little bit, but it it began to converge a lot with just a normal game for me. Like as the as the emperor, it was mostly a it was mostly me going through and uh, continuing to try and balance out my imperial court. Um, and deal with other problems like the fact that you do have more people like defecting. Uh, from from the empire, and you do have as the emperor, you have the interesting ability to uh, kick people out of the empire and sort of make them anathema um, in a very John Wick way, and uh, go after them. I will say that one of the one of the um, things that was kind of a, 
a drawback to the to the Jung uh, brothers' campaigns is that they don't have a big uh, group of candidates for like generals and stuff like that. Like you really don't have a lot of leaders, and and you'll get to a point where you're having to just hire generic cavalry captain, which kind of feels bad because you're just like, man, I sure wish I had a cool dude or lady with a helmet or a sword or something. But uh, I you know you got these nine. 10 people out the gate and then you're just stuck with them for a long long time and it is it is tough to be like there are people in the in the history that would be good choices but i guess i mean you know time constraints things like that design constraints art constraints but but i would have liked to seen more of the people who were fundamental in the yellow turbans um in there as a as as uh people that you could pick up uh to lead your troops and when you guys were talking about you know what what do you replace the eunuchs with? Well, in the in the in the yellow turbans, you replace them with just people, just peasants, thousands of peasants. Hi, puppy. Uh, yeah, we got an entire chaotic situation about to unfold. Uh, my partner just came home with a giant bag of dog food the size of her torso. Uh, Mina just spotted my partner and the dog food. Um, so we got a little bit of a situation here. About to go tau <laughs> yeah. on the Jing province. Uh, but but yeah. Rowan, uh, while while I wait to see what sort of disaster is about to unfold, uh, did you did you make the time jump? Like wh- like how did you find? Yeah, I mean it's not really a time jump. You just keep playing. Uh, like a, some of the advertising on this was a little confusing. It was like, oh, this will convert into another game. It was like, oh, do you like save after the Civil War and then it jumps to one ninety? No, it's just you keep playing. Uh, and yeah, it. The Mandate War ended up taking a a long time because it just, like, didn't end. Like, there were just yellow turbans running around until, like, 200, even though they had been pretty well beaten by the time that uh, the main campaign would have started, 190 or so. Uh, So that kind of slowed the roll of the, like, everyone getting going before the Civil War starts, which, again, made for an interesting little uh, shift in how the... uh, how the campaign played out because it was like you know you can divide the history up into like three kind of core phases um the like chaos consolidating which probably ends around when Cao Cao defeats Yuan Chao uh, and then like moving into the three kingdoms phase which ends roughly when Guan Yu and uh uh Liu Bei die and uh the Tao family fully deposes the emperor, emperor around 220-ish. And then, um, you know, the full Three Kingdoms phase, which goes for another 50 years. Uh, so here, this was kind of delayed a little bit, but because these heroes are still kind of alive and building their troops, like, you have this interesting development of factions in very different directions. Um, like, as Liu Bei, I have, you know, the three brothers, and then I ended up getting Zhang Liao, Zhu Chu, and uh, Guo Jia. So I got, like, a really good set of uh, Cao Cao's main lieutenants, and I think that's what has had me able to defeat Yuan Chao, is that I have, like, eight dynasty warriors, and he has himself in Zhao Dun, and uh, <laughs> that makes, like, there have been a few battles that, like, I have won a siege because I put Guan Yu on top of the walls, and he just tears up their elite infantry units because he's level nine and uh 
that's, you know, that feels like it, the way that the game should go, right? Uh, so, I, yeah, I've gotten into the, the end game of this where the, where the three kingdoms start, although it's really closer to five kingdoms, as I mentioned. Uh, and Yuan Shao was like the big superpower. He should have been the one who was winning. And like, he was rolling me back in our first war. And I had to like, take a bad piece in order to stop that because like, there was no way I was going to be able to do it. And then I accidentally got into another war with him. Uh, like I tried to make vassals with somebody and I didn't actually notice that they were at war with Yuan Chao. So uh, I went right back at it and had a really interesting thing where like, like I said, where the, my map has been kind of divided where I'm going down the West coast and Yuan Chao is going down the West center. So we basically have this like giant multi-front war with both of our capitals like in the north directly facing one another and he sent like four full armies at my main my capital province and i had like three full armies there to defend it and just had this brutal back and forth battle where you know they won but i bled them to death they tried to besiege my main trade port i took them out there just barely and then like eventually finished off their armies and then i look around the rest of the map after having you know spent like three hours on these like six different battles last night and he's basically collapsed like all of my armies that i could walk in and all of my allies are just starting to push him back on every front and it's like oh this was actually a really interesting strategic simulation of what happened to Yuan Shao in history at the Battle of Guandu, where he had like every advantage over Cao Cao, who managed to bleed him and then turn him back. And then all of a sudden, the Yuan Shao just kind of collapsed. So I actually came out of this like even more impressed by the, the strategic viability that simulation that this is portraying because like, that felt like the way that it should feel both historically and in terms of the amount of effort that I put in barely not losing. Uh, and he put all his economy into doing this and failed. And now it's, uh, now it's a the opportunity to mop him up and like, yeah, this is what I was hoping for from having the earlier start date was this like slight remix that still mostly works. The, yeah, the interesting thing about the the turbines is, uh, like, you can there basically when the mandate war ends, it tells you you won the campaign, and I think you can keep playing after that and go for like the traditional imperial victory uh, that you get in the main campaign. But um, yeah, like their their victory condition is literally just win the mandate war, which you can do like you know well before things would have really gotten you know to a to a boiling point in the main campaign. Uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting decision that, you know, they let you play kind of a shorter campaign if you want to. What happens if you win? Do you like become the emperor? What? No, it just, I mean, the, the world's the, I, you can continue playing and have the world state continue on like a regular three kingdoms campaign, but you get like the victory cinematic and stuff. Um, you still have to, if you want to properly become emperor, you still have to keep playing and get your, um, 
prestige or whatever they call it up like they have the they have the tower where you go from like duke to king to emperor like you would in a normal campaign it's just that that has no bearing on the objectives that you're given if you do the mandate of heaven start uh yeah when i so when i uh won as emperor it was kind of a like you transition into the main timeline. The Mandate of Heaven campaign is over, but you've already met the requirement yeah. to become emperor. Obviously, uh, you 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 technically hold on to the correct number of provinces, which is interesting because your alliances and vassals as emperor in this game are not like your alliances and vassals are when you're playing the game. Uh, the the main campaign is another faction, right? Like when you have a vassal in the main campaign. That is actually like an AI buddy who like responds to, hey, go fight here, do this. There are a lot of people who are technically your vassals as the emperor who just don't talk to you. Like they don't respond to anything. They're just, they're just dudes out there, uh, holding on to territory that would be useful to have, but they are technically imperial officers who you get a cut of their income, but then you chances are you, you give that cut right back to them. Uh, so that, that's kind of a push. And so you're, it's an interesting thing because you, my experience as I started to delve into playing after mandate of heaven was very much a, and maybe this is, maybe there's something kind of insightful here that the best outcome for the Han is nothing's really fixed, but everyone just pretends things are fine. Which was kind of my game plan, right? Like, I still had, like, in the west of China, you still have tons of, uh, you know, Han vassals going to war with each other and just, like, going full Thunderdome. Uh, because they're like, hey, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's purge night. Crime is legal. Uh, I am going to take over western <laughs> China as a loyal subject of the emperor. And I'm like, I can't pick between you. Uh, you guys both seem fine, so that's great. Whoever wins the war, uh, the Empire still wins. And so when when I transition to the main timeline, I'm still trying to get rid of the eunuchs. Um, I am still trying to carve out a base of support literally anywhere. The Empire can't feed itself. Uh, and Yuan Shao took all my farmland <laughs> in a fit of peak. Uh, so I was, I was sitting there trying to figure out like, well, what does, what does playing this campaign look like from here? Because it only gets really dicey if you decide to start doing stuff like annexing territory and placing it under direct rule, which you can do. You can spend political influence to take territory away from these like AI goons and just take over a city or a province and rule it directly. But it does piss them off to no end. Uh, and it can sort of, it, it can create civil wars for, for the empire. And so it's kind of this weird thing where, like on the one hand, actually fixing the, the Han dynasty, I'm sitting there thinking, there's a lot of work here to be done, and it could be fun, and it will require probably you know, cracking a lot of heads together. But on the other hand, as far as the game was concerned, I'd already won. Like the game was like, Hey, way to go. You're, you're crushing it, big guy. And I was like, damn, I did crush it. <laughs> How much of the Empire's campaign do you feel like is I'm fixing the Empire and making it better? And how much of it does it feel like I'm fixing the status quo and I'm going to make sure that, that my rule is the rule? Like at the end of the Emperor's campaign, do you feel like you've 
fixed <laughs> China. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, I'm still in charge, uh, baby. No, <laughs> it's like you still have power to the engines, but the gaping hole in the water li- uh, below the water line is just like continuing to widen. So it, it's it's a weird feeling where like you have like by the end, I was thinking I have made some good decisions here. Like I've got the budget back in back in black. Uh, a lot of the eunuchs have been moved out. I've got a more balanced Imperial court. I can now replenish some of my best troops. Um, the yellow turbans are gone. Uh, so the fervor mechanic is gone. I'm not even sure. Um, who's the Terminator, uh, ass yellow turban who's left over the start of the main campaign? Is it, is it Hey Jen? Not Hey Jen. Um, no, Chang Bao? No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, oh, you original, mean in the original? Oh, uh, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not even. Sure, I'm not sure where he yeah, was a, yeah. in all this. Uh, he may have still been kicking around, but the core yellow turbines were gone. The big, the, the but the issue that I still had was the empire is a shambles. Like you look at the map, and it's a bunch of governors who can't govern shit. Right? Like there's rebellions hitting them all the time. The level of development is in the gutter. Uh, you have different officials going to war with each other under the auspices of the empire. And to fix any of that, you basically have to begin risking busting up the empire. And there's actually a lot of incentive not to do right. that. And so I'm like, eh. Right. That's one. That's kind of what my concern is this like with the emperor and the empire and the way that things were. Basically, everybody – the emperor is just the – you know, he's the monarch. He's the in charge of it, but like, and he has the mandate of heaven, but like, he is not in charge of the regions, which can just freely wage war on one another whenever they get their, their ire up. You know, like, that was one of the biggest issues of the empire before was the fact that basically the empire, the emperor was like, like, oh, Sao Sao wants to kill this guy. Well, cool, great. As long as the people <laughs> still give me my money, I don't care how many people die, you know? Uh, but if like if he does something I don't like or he, if he hurts my bottom line, then I have to send out my my enforcer to break his thumbs or whatever. And I just <laughs> I feel like that's just like perpetuating that. And it, I feel like as a, as the ending to a game, it's a very sort of I don't feel good about this. Even yeah, though and I will say the other thing is you don't even want to send your enforcers out there to fix these issues, right? Like the guys who are raising all sorts of havoc in the North and the West, you don't even really want to go do that because the problem is your armies are just going to be moving through not hostile territory, but they're a bunch of vassals who don't give a shit about you. You're, you're, so you're moving troops away from your Imperial center to go suppress these guys on the margins, but it's a long walk and you have no base of support between you and the theater of operations. Uh, so you kind of keep Heijin at home, right? Because like that army is the thing that, that protects the, you know, imperial, the, the imperial core. And if you're out there and your two governors have gone to war and you're caught in the middle of that, it's just too far, right? It's like, I got to go the whole way yeah. and I'm not. And so it does kind of, it also sort of emphasizes this fact of like, just structurally, there's things about this that are not workable. Like the the em- the emperor can't actually coerce good government or obedience from any of these guys because at this point they're all basically independent nations under a weak ruler, and you can't send your army through their territory. 
Well, and even if you can, like even if you have access, your good Imperial troops have that huge penalty to replenishment outside your own territory. Uh, so unless you pass like some of the really high level army reforms, it's not even strategically viable to project your power to the outer provinces. Like you can go fight one battle and be like, okay, let's let's see if that did anything, and then you have to go home. Um, which I thought was really interesting. It's like you have the best troops in the game, hands down, but they're pretty much totally useless until the late game outside of that little imperial core where you actually have enough food production to overcome the replenishment penalty. Well, this is actually kind of the way that Total War has gone in the past few years, right? That it's sending one single army out in Warhammer and in Three Kingdoms is very difficult to get progress done because, you know, you get if you get into any reasonably even fight both armies are going to be so brutalized that uh you can't actually accomplish anything so the goal becomes in all of these games to try to find the point where you can hit the strategic uh win the strategic effects without losing anything elsewhere which um, i also like that it does make it more um a game where you have to choose where you're going to fight on the campaign map, right? Like, oh man, I want to take this fight in reinforcement range of this town because that's the only way I'm going to be able to launch a counterattack is if these poor bastards from the local militia soak damage uh, <laughs> while the army sent to rescue them sort of sits back and, and prepares for the offensive. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is the... I, I think I find it less onerous here than I often do in the Total War games, where I feel like a, the like to, the the Total War games are very uh, deliberately constructed to retard that kind of progress. I feel like there's a little bit more of a chance to go on a run in uh, in Total War Three Kingdoms. I don't know if that's because of the the heroes being such massive difference makers if you get them up to the right point and the right equipment. Uh, but it, it feels like I have a little bit more of a chance to, uh, you know, get some momentum going in my favor. Whereas I think in some other Total War games, it sometimes does feel a bit like, well, uh, we had our annual battle at the frontier and uh, <laughs> we both retreated to our town to get the double replenishment and we will try this again next year. Yeah, I, I think some of it is uh, the heroes. Um, some of it is also that it gives you a whole lot of money if you win a close battle. Uh, and that lets you recruit another army, you know, and, you know, put it on this front or put it on a different front. Uh, or, you know, invest in having your economy escalate, which was really my problem when I was in this, like, apocalyptic war with the Kingdom of Song was, like, they had an economy that let them have 20 armies filled with elite units i had five armies filled with pretty good units i had to like take every battle invested in my economy and now i can like push past them which is uh at the strategic level it's really well done it's the tactical level i'm still not fully sold on how they have tilted this game in particular and warhammer to another extent where uh the battles are not as bad as, you know, Rome 2 or Attila, but they get pretty scrummy and you're going to take high casualties like no matter what. Uh, and then when you combine that with the way that the 
armies work in this where they're not individual units, they're the retinue, so you're basically having the same people in the same armies face each other repeatedly, potentially. Uh, I don't know, it's it's fun, but it's difficult to like have that feeling of tactical genius that you might want from uh, the best Total War games. Best no, of our combat games. This is obviously the best. I, no, I'm with play. you. I'm with you there. Especially uh, one thing that I felt like fighting the yellow turbans in particular was a dynamic of uh, the dynamic there tactically was find the unbreakable units and stay the fuck away from them. <laughs> like find where they are. Remember <laughs> them. It's 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 a bit like a shell game, right? Because like, again, it is super scrummy. Once these armies clash, you can't see anything. So you need to remember, like, no, in the middle of that group of peasants is like a dozen dudes who are unbreakable. And if you try to like do all the total war shit, where I'm gonna I'm gonna flank them, and then hit them from behind with cavalry, it's not going to do the thing you need it to do, and you will lose battles because of that. Uh, because all those shock effects basically get mooted uh, by those troops, and I feel like the yellow turban army is kind of tuned uh, for that, right? Like the yellow turban army is like, oh, we've hidden super elite units here, um, and. If you do not figure out where they're hidden in this mass of humanity, uh, they are going to absorb every single thing that Total War has been training you to do for 20 years. Uh, and, you know, then it's just going to be a, a raw numbers game uh, by the end of it, which I found a little bit frustrating. Like, I liked, I liked the feel of the Yellow Turbans in some ways as broadly a peasant army that isn't too much to worry about in in its masses uh and then undergirded by small cadres of elite troops i liked that in theory but i found that so many of them being unbreakable in particular not just good but unbreakable i started getting flashbacks to like uh the original medieval uh viking invasion where they decided like viking huskarls oh, yeah. were just like uh you know the the medieval equivalent of uh you know the the, the archangel michael <laughs> i think that's yeah that's the fervor mechanic though working i mean it's like you want to keep that fervor maxed out because you're you got peasants you got dudes with spears and and you know a couple people out there just doing it and like but you have a, you can just replenish them and like you you almost never going to execute anybody except for the generals cuz you want to keep pulling these units in cuz it's going to keep your fervor high and you're going to just keep whooping ass in fights because you just your guys don't break as long as you keep uh i i leveled up uh Chengjue and the first thing i got was like dude can't be broken and then i keep him right there in the middle of all my units and i just overwhelm like like World War Z style on every single other army. I'm just like, look, I don't have, I don't have martial artists. I don't have dynasty warriors. I got, but I got a thousand dudes and they're real upset with the government. And so we're just going <laughs> to run this down the middle. And, uh, and I was like, I was, uh, the only thing I, I used as far as like a strategy was like, as soon as I got those heavy crossbows, those, yep. uh, arbalists, those things, man, those <laughs> things, I was putting those in every single army. I was like, all right, we're going to put those up on a hill and then everybody else, guerrilla warfare, we're going to rush this stuff down middle. We're going to kill every archer and then it's just going to be a, a dog fight. And I, I was, I was whooping. I, it was, it felt like, for me, who who so often chooses the path of of the punch, you know, I'm just like, this is great. I just wanna, I just wanna rock uh, these strategies by just running through them and and taking it, you know, 
mono green style, I guess, is the way I would put it in like a Magic the Gathering <laughs> terms. So, in terms of what this adds to the game, um, I think I've cooled on it a very little bit because we've been talking about some of the limitations of this expansion that were, were maybe weren't totally obvious to me right at the start. Uh, ways that maybe the the jump into the the main continuity uh, can be a little bit uh, flawed depending on who you're playing and and sort of the the arc planned for those those factions. But I think. Nevertheless, I do really love this idea of the prologue campaign that is bringing different dynamics into play to sort of set the table for the main period. Like, every other Total War has tended to hive these experiences off and put them, you know, in in different silos. I like the effort here, and I think it worked way better than I was expecting. Like... This is a really fun way for me to play Total War. I'm not. I'm not coming to this saying, "Oh, I'm not going to do that start. I'm going to go back to the." I'm now that I've you know had my fun. I'm going to go back to the real game, uh, and the you know this is whatever. I'm actually mostly into what this is doing, uh, and I'm I'm curious to see where y'all are at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it just tells a more complete story. Like, the original start date they picked made sense from, like, a strategy game design perspective, but it didn't feel like you got to play out the entire romance of the Three Kingdoms because it, you know, it started a fair bit into, you know, where the novel actually starts uh, or from where the novel actually starts. So I just, you know, I like that it lets you experience a more more complete version of that story, and it does a really good job on top of that of having when you do hit that point where the main campaign is supposed to start the world looks something like you know what you would expect it to look like at that point in time which i'm sure was not an easy thing to pull off yeah that's something that jenny was talking about at the on the last show or the first show for this game particularly not the setting uh she was saying that like Cao Cao is, you know, the winner here, and we're starting this after his, as a person, most important parts of his story, right? He's he's basically well set up in where he's going to be and win the war from. We're not at the point where he's running around trying to, like, figure out what his base of power and his next move is going to be. Uh, he's he's where he's supposed to be in 190 whereas in this you have that that chaos that he becomes the hero of uh and playing as Liu Bei that was you know I played the original one as Cao Cao playing as Liu Bei the other chief protagonist here um like you have the heart the start of his story here you have him meeting the brothers it's not really <laughs> anything exciting that happens it isn't they in the book kinda, either, though, they just right? kind of pop like, up they work for him, and then they he's like, ah, oh, great, you work for me. And then there's a lot of stuff, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's missing about how Lubu and Sao, or Sao, works for Sao Sao alongside Liu Bei. Liu Bei works for Sao Sao and Lubu at the same time, and Sao Sao's helping resolve it. But, like, all that stuff is very, like, this game doesn't focus on the big Lubu myth, which is kind of, like, he shows up and he'll, he'll kill people, but it's it's a lot I of had- story. I I don't know how this happened, but somehow Lu Bu became like the leader of that one little 
province at the very north of uh, the southern part of things across the river from – I have the map in front of me. The but top left corner up there? No, the the top right corner of the south. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just like – it usually just sits there. Somehow he got away. Like I still actually have Dong Joyo's daughter in my game. Like she's basically beaten down. Zhang Yi. Zhang Ye? Yeah, I know which one you're. T- it's yeah. like it's opposite, opposite Long of the way. Yellow River from where like Kongrong starts off. Yeah, uh, and so all of a sudden, Lu Bu is like suddenly appeared in West Central China and as a faction leader to ruin everything for everybody. And it's like, oh, this is good. I like that this happens. So it is historically accurate. <laughs> he's just yes. going around. He's like, guess what? Now I'm in charge of this province. Yeah, and like I, I don't know if he just like declared war on everybody until he died, but he did not actually create any strategic things. It was just amusing to see Lu Bu in charge of a faction, even as Dong Zhuo was still in charge of a faction. Um, Him and Chen Gong were ride or die until their end. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> rode, and they definitely died. <laughs> I hope that uh, this – I love this, uh, the Yellow Serpent stuff. I love the way the Mandate of Heaven lets me go right into Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's a very important and super uh, overlooked part of the story. I think it gets the least amount of um, like screen time in terms of like all Romance of the Three Kingdoms media. And I think it is super important towards the building up like why the, the Brothers Three – uh, Liu Bei and them, and then why Cao Cao and why Sun Jian mattered, and their parts to play in in this beginning of the Three Kingdoms. And if you don't know that stuff, then it you really are only getting a fraction of the story. And if you don't understand like how young they were when they started, and how like crazy the the situations where I think it's hard to get a scope of like, well, I played Dynasty Warriors and Sun Jian was there and he was kicking everyone's ass. And it's like, it really wasn't like that. It wasn't him just like walking out looking like muscly Guy Fieri and punching the, the, the yellow <laughs> turban in the head. Like it didn't work like that. And I think it's super cool to see that. I, I am really hopeful that we get the Gene uh, campaign. Uh, as the kind of the opposite end of that, where it's like, okay, now you're coming in at the very at the end, and you're taking over the gene, and and Liu Bei's son is in charge, and and you know Sun Xuan is failing in Wu in the south, and I, I want to see uh, all of that stuff get, you know, new officer art. <laughs> Me and uh, Rowan had talked about the custom officer art, I think, after the last podcast, but I I, I want to see more focus on the end of the Three Kingdoms period as too, because it's just as interesting and there's just as many cool people and, and cool battles, and like and I say cool as, you know, history, but like there's just as much inter- interesting stuff at the end as there was in the beginning. Yeah, yeah well, if, if you notice, they yeah. added a little timeline to the character select screen that looks like it has a lot more room on it for other start dates, so... Yeah, uh, I did want to talk about the other expansion briefly, but uh, to go back to what Brian said, like, in terms of the game mechanics, like, when you start as Liu Bei, he's level one. When you recruit Zhang Fei, he's level one. And Guan Yu is level four. So, like, my instinct when the the Yellow Turban Rebellion starts is, I'm going to go all Dynasty Warriors. That's not going to work. Like, you have to actually build up for them to become those superheroes who could just massacre a thousand dudes in a battle and it doesn't take that long but it does create like an interesting tightrope of trying to figure out exactly when and where you can 
successfully launch your fights. Uh, it took me like four or five restarts with Liu Bei to actually get a solid foundation for a, a full campaign even because uh, the deck is stacked against you and you do have to do that like slight role-playing aspect of the game at the start before you go into the Three Kingdoms or Total War full strategic layer. Uh, so that that was an interesting side of things. I might want to try Cao Cao, maybe not a full campaign, but just to see like what his events are and what, what the game kind of guides him down uh, because there are interesting things going on in terms of building that up. But yeah, I was going to ask about the Eight Princes uh, campaign that was the first major expansion that they released. Did any of you all play that? No, so... It made no impression on me whatsoever. And the weird thing is, when I launched into this campaign, there was nothing like surfacing that. There was nothing being like, yo, here's that other expansion you have. Um, and so it was very strange. It was very clearly signposted into Mandate of Heaven. Uh, but I didn't see, like, you know, like TJ says, there's that timeline thing that has the different start dates. I'm not even sure that Eight Princes had, had, a, had a spot. On, is it? No, it's definitely there. Maybe it's. Maybe it's from it's on, was, it's on there. Yeah. When I was playing the beta for Mandate of Heaven, that wasn't in there. I don't know. So yeah, I, I basically yeah. missed it. Uh, how is it? I haven't played it either. I was no, I, 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 I was curious, but I, not like so much that I started. I don't think no. any of us have played it. Yet. No, this I, is this is important because like Creative Assembly basically apologized for it. They were like, "We thought people would like this. We thought it was neat. Nobody liked it." We're gonna we're gonna focus on the things people like from now on. I think. Well, that, uh, if I think if you're if your game if you're launching your most popular Total War game of all time and it's Romance of the Three Kingdoms Total War, maybe you know it, in hindsight just stick to Three Kingdom stuff. Like the they princes are, uh, you know, they have a role to play, I guess, in the in this the lore, but like. This is like a thing, and it's a finite thing. It is a very like, and and so like if you make an expansion and it's a bunch of people that that people who are fans of your Romance of Three Kingdoms or your Dynasty Wars or whatever, even the anime that's based off that stuff, and you're coming out and your expansion is like this one's about Steve and he works in a factory, <laughs> and it's like yo, I don't really Steve-y. give a shit about Steve, my man. Sima I Steve. Want to see Sima Steve, yeah, yeah. Where's I would rather be killing Shuge Don over and over and over again than hear about Steve's factory. So that one mostly focuses on what after the entire Three Kingdoms period is basically wrapped. Like it's just about the gin. Yep, it's post. Ten, it's, yeah, it's post ten, the gene. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> ten years after they finally finish off Wu, the gene collapse. Yes, yeah, and it it goes into like thirty years of civil war before they're totally gone. Well, not totally gone, but. Gone is the okay. dominant so force. Eight, so eight princes like this the is th- this is the first half of eight that. princes is like the ironic DLC. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just that like the gene are really interesting and their ploy and the way that they bring everything together and and subjugate Wu is really interesting. But like then it's like well, okay, but what about their great grandkids? And I'm I just like I stop reading at that point. Well, the novel ends at that point. Yeah. Well, that's the uh, point. I mean, I can't can't read it if it ain't there. Yeah. Yeah. We we don't have like the lore for these people in the way that we do. That especially as a Western audience, like we can get into you know the stereotypes that our a Dynasty Warriors puts out about these characters, and then get into the the more nuanced depictions of the history because there is just so much like. 
interesting and accessible forms of media around these people. Whereas the gene, like the, this civil war looks really interesting. I like did some research. I read about it, but you get eight dudes named Suma and like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's a phase after that when like the empire, like s- slowly starts collapsing and it's like half barbarians, half Sumas. Uh, that looks like it would actually be a more general full campaign if they felt like it. Whereas this kind of was like a half, felt like a half measure and i don't think it's a half measure they're going to actually go and complete because yeah most people didn't really seem to want to play this um i was mostly interested in it because i going back to what brian said i was like oh maybe a modder can take these eight new unique characters and you know attach them to pang day and whoever was uh not uh, a unique model in uh the original three kingdoms who should have been shanghai Lots of people like that. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, there's still so many like major, major names that don't have art. I there's a, there's a running list. Yes, I, I'm sure. I'm sure we could find eight people to attach those guys to. Yeah. I don't know if that's actually possible with the modding tools that are available. I can't just upload but, photos uh, yeah, of my that friends. Was, that, <laughs> like I can, I can run it through one of those websites that, like, hey, like turn your turn your friend's face into cool cartoon art. Be like, can you match the style of this game? They'll got you. <laughs> who who on your Twitter friends list is Zhang Hei? Who's your Who's your Zhang Hei? Oh. oh man! All right, so it sounds like um, wherever they go from here, they can't go back to they can't go back to the gin. Yeah, I've... well, not the not the like late gin. I think that the the gin as the role they played in the actual Three yeah. Kingdoms period is definitely something that they should expand on. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch. Like, I don't think Jiang Wei even has a uh, unique character model. Like, and he's you know the second incarnation of Zhuge Liang in in the novel. In that he launches a bunch of wars and loses all of them, but. Uh, <laughs> perfect it's my favorite yeah i mean just totally incompetent the novel does its absolute best to turn him into a superhero but regardless like he's (laughs) he's a huge figure in like the second half of the the or the the full three kingdoms era and he's just a name on this might be a gold name um but yeah like there's there's a lot of characters like that especially in the later years that they could focus on um i think they have straight up said that they're going to add nanmon and i hope the other southern um southern tribes yeah. the southern tribes that wu was fighting against the the sort of northern vietnamese types like that i think that having like Minghua. external to china uh cultures and factions would be really really interesting because a lot of these are so samey um get a little more variety in there especially in the south like i think that would be a really good direction for this to go um maybe some you know northern barbarian invasions i'm trying to remember was there not a war with korea around the same time or just after the three kingdoms period I think there was, uh, there was something about that when I was reading about the eight princes. There was yeah, there was a there was like some Korean warlord who tried to invade, uh, like the northeastern part of China at some point in that era. I don't remember the details of it exactly. 
Like, uh, that would be good strategically as well. Like the South needs to be fleshed out, and also the Northeast, like Gong Song Zan, is like, yeah the safety a, corner. Yeah, he's he's in Australia <laughs> in risk, basically. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I think that pretty much sums up the geopolitics of uh, of the period. And on that note, I think we will leave Mandate of Heaven. And uh, I don't know if if more cool expansions come along for Three Kingdoms, I might come back. I was like, I'm, I think I'm done with this game. Then I was like, ooh, yellow turbans, and like came right back. Uh, and I've enjoyed it <laughs> a lot. So if they do late war late war stuff, uh, I'll probably show up for that, and we'll all do a podcast on it again because uh, this is this is such a well made fucking game. We, we just all kind of were like, yeah, new Three Kingdoms thing. We're all going to start this. I guess we're doing a show since every single one of us is playing it. Yeah, I paid money for an, for a Romance of the Three Kingdoms skin in Overwatch, a game I don't even play. I don't know how to play the game. I was just like, well, I'm getting the skin, so help me God, yeah. I'll have it. Add uh, add some Riverine Warfare so we can have a proper battle of Red Cliffs. That's my one other request. Oh man, oh, that no, would be DJ. a whole expansion. You can't. JJ, naval battles back in. Tafer, Jesus God. Okay, <laughs> I knew this episode the, was going to be Take the long. naval <laughs> battles from Command and Conquer. Take the naval battles from Command and Conquer and just put those in Total War. Those the battles fun. in Fall of the Samurai were good. The naval warfare in Fall of the Samurai was good. I'm gonna, but you know, but that's also because they're ironclads at that point. So like, it didn't matter. Their their rules yeah. were weird for how boats moved. It looked good as hell, and it mostly worked. Uh, but overall, terrible idea. Don't do it. Don't listen to TJ. Um, <laughs> I heard Yuge Liang invented ironclads in the Three Kingdoms era, so I think we can make this work. Oh, no. Are you going to put the flame cannons in there, too? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Only if you make his wife a, a general, then I'll accept it. Yuge right. deserves better. Look, the only women in the Three Kingdoms game are generals. That is where the next generation of leaders are raised. We just, it's, it's like an anime, really. Like a cool badass warrior later, lady shows up in your court and, uh, they fall in love with your lord. And that's, and, and that's how you pass on the dynasty. Cause nobody, cause none of these fuckers and, will do a marriage deal. Nobody. Is that and a, none is that of a, them will ever be a vanguard. So there's like, one-tenth as many vanguards as everything else. It's so annoying. Is that something that CA just doesn't like to balance around, or is it just something that, like, like I've noticed that, like, I've never been able to get uh, a marriage thing or any of that stuff. Like, diplomacy seems very, very difficult. Diplomacy works, I think, decently well in this game with, like, general questions of war and peace, but yeah, deals like that, like, creating, like, dynastic relationships the value propositions seem all out of whack. Like the only people who were interested in doing marriage deals are like nobodies who like, yeah, I'm sure you'd love to marry into my family. Fuck off. Um, but it- <laughs> that's how Guan Yu died, Rob. <laughs> Dad of the that year. That attitude. <laughs> all right. He was like, oh, my kid marrying into Wu. Fuck <laughs> off. Oh, I'm beheaded. Goodbye. Well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. <laughs> this episode is produced by Keith Carberry. Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash MMA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA, which also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Rowan, for TJ, for Brian, 
This is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.